Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hey everybody, this is Don Payne, your host. And periodically, we want to expose you to uh, people in other regions of the country who are engaging the needs of the world in courageous and creative ways. So for a couple of episodes, I'm going to be coming to you from Amarillo, Texas, and interacting with some people here who are doing uh, really remarkable ministry that can be quite instructive for the rest of us. Uh, Many people know where Amarillo is, or at least know of it. If you don't, it's a city of just under 200,000 in the Texas panhandle. It's a little bit isolated from a geographical perspective, but I've learned over the past few years that it hosts a really thriving and uh, quite creative ministry community. And one thing that might surprise lots of people is that Amarillo is one of the leading refugee resettlement cities in the state of Texas. In fact, Though the larger metro areas like Dallas and Houston will host more refugees in total net numbers, Amarillo resettles more refugees per capita than any city in the state, as far as I understand. And so this week, we're going to be talking about engagement with and ministry to refugee communities. And our guest is the founder and director of the Refugee Language Project here in Amarillo. He holds a PhD in linguistics from the University of Cairns in Australia, uh, a certification in English language teaching for adults from the University of Cambridge, and served for several years as a translator for Wycliffe Bible Translators in Papua New Guinea. Now, I'll ask him to give you more details about that, but I want to welcome Dr. Ryan Pennington to Engage 360. Welcome, Ryan. Yeah, thanks, Don, for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, First, tell us, if you would, a bit about your own background and how you got involved in this work. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, You know, I I spent, like you said, I spent uh, nearly 10 years in the country of Papua New Guinea uh, doing a linguistic analysis, uh, which would be a precursor to Bible translation among a a previously undescribed uh, language. That what I mean to say is they had no alphabet, no grammatical description. So, uh, so those, those were the first steps that needed to be taken uh, for work uh, with Wycliffe there. And then, uh, you know, uh, just a few years ago, my, my family and I moved back to the United States and found ourselves in Amarillo, Texas. And uh, we were wondering how, how God might use our uh, skills and experiences. And we were surprised to find the huge number of refugee uh, people groups and just the huge number of people who have fled other countries and found their home in Amarillo. And so we just thought, certainly there's uh, something uh, that, that we could do to, to be engaged with this work here locally. How many refugees, or what is the total refugee population here in Amarillo? Yeah, I get asked that question a lot, and I, I never can give a very confident answer. I, I'm guessing around 15,000, but uh, there are always so many coming and going. It's it's tough to get a good, accurate picture. And from about how many countries or people groups? Um, let's let's say probably mainly uh, five or six countries that that have the highest uh, number. Burma being the largest current uh, number, 
then Somalia being another huge contributor, and then several African countries like Congo, Rwanda, uh, and Sudan uh, also offering quite a few people. So what brings them to Amarillo? Um, For many of them, you know, it's a different story depending on which country and even which ethnic group from each country. Um, So, for example, the Chin people from Burma are here often uh, having been persecuted as Christians. And therefore, even though the, the population of Christianity, the population of Christians in the country of Burma is very low, it's actually the majority of Burmese refugees. Um, so you see that borne out among the Chin, uh, but then the Karen people also from Burma are often not here for that reason. Their, their reasons for being, for being refugee, refugees anyway are more political. Uh, however, what brings them to Amarillo is low cost of living uh, as well as a thriving meatpacking industry that hires a lot of immigrants uh, with, with almost no English Uh, background, and they can start work at $17 an hour full medical benefits with no experience working in the United States. So it's a very great first first job in the U.S. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tell us um, maybe a little bit more about the refugee community here. Fill fill in some blanks. Yeah, sure. More details on that. Uh, I'd say the largest current number of refugees uh, is the Karen, with probably 5,000 people. So that is a, a group from the country of Burma or Myanmar, uh, some people would call it. So uh, that's a very large group made up of a lot of uh, Buddhists as well as Christians. Um, the second largest group, uh, I believe, uh, is from Somalia with probably several thousand uh, people. And they're more monocultural, though there are different languages represented. Uh, it's a simpler uh, picture. Um In the past, we had a lot of uh, refugees here from the countries of Laos and Vietnam. And so those, the restaurants that you see uh, scattered around Amarillo often serve Lao and Thai food. And those are primarily uh, Lao refugees who still own those businesses to this day. Uh, But they, they've been here a long time now since the 90s, and they're they're thriving. And and by and large, they, they have been a a success story uh, for the city. But now the current influx uh, being from Burma, Somalia, and also Congo uh, is much different in that we have a lot of people with uh, coming from countries where we've had civil war and low opportunities for education. And so they they really struggle here in the city uh, because they don't understand a lot of the expectations placed on them from paying attention to the clock. <laughs> um, you know, that's an yeah. almighty thing yeah. <laughs> in this country. Cultural icon. Exactly. Uh, to the need for uh, money uh, where many of these cultures, for example, from Congo, would have been quite happy to trade and barter uh, with produce from their gardens. And here they have to have the almighty dollar. Uh, that that that's a real struggle, and and then the second struggle is how to care for their families, their children, because their hopes rest on their children succeeding, uh, and yet they don't really know how to advocate for their children or how to encourage their children as they pursue education here in this country, because they themselves were never in a school, uh, for for many of them anyway. So. Bridging that gap between them and local institutions, local businesses, schools, social services is a real challenge. Okay. 
So you're a linguist, mm-hmm. and obviously there are lots of um, efforts of a civic nature and a religious nature toward refugee communities around the country. Your refugee language project has, a, at least ostensibly, a very specific focus, and you come at this as a linguist. Tell us a little bit about that background for you and then how that shaped this project. Yeah, that's a, a great question. I, you know, I'm, I'm just really, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian who moved back to the United States and wanted to serve the nations. And the, the experience and skills that God has given me uh, have revolved around language for a long time now. Uh, but I'm not someone who is fluent. You know, I get asked the question a lot, how many, okay, you're a linguist, how many languages do you speak? And like most linguists, I don't like that question. I can't answer that question because what does it mean to speak a language? I can't get past the semantics of that question. Um, maybe I understand the grammar of a dozen languages, uh, but that I can actually speak fluently in? Really, only a, only a few. Um, so you're not one who just naturally picks up languages. I'm not at all. Okay. And I'm certainly no polyglot. And I'm someone who forgets languages just as quick as I'll, as I'll learn them. So you have no I'm idea not, how encouraging this is to me. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that a lot because yeah. people think that I, I must be some someone with this superhuman ability, this innate ability to learn languages. And actually, that's not true at all. What makes me unique is that I spend a lot of time with people. And I, yeah, I use language creatively. Uh, you know, when even now, when I when I use Somali, the Somali community in Amarillo thinks that I speak Somali fluently. They they talk about me like I am a native Somali person, but in reality, I know enough Somali to win hearts. I know enough Somali, and maybe to get yourself in trouble here and, and there. to get myself in, absolutely. <laughs> but I know enough Somali to you know to get a point across. But I, if I don't study for a few weeks, I forget so much. I mean, I have to study, uh, and for, for many months, I study for an hour a day, just every single day. Uh, and I also spend a lot of time with Somali people. So that, that name, Refugee Language Project, really the, the point was that originally our focus was indeed on helping refugees to learn English because through English, they will have access to a lot of the resources that they can only get with that skill. Mm-hmm. So it is a, it's a skill that they need, that they recognize is lacking. However, in spite of that, I find myself often focusing more on the languages that refugees speak instead of on English. There are a lot of other local programs, churches, uh, Amarillo Community College that that have good ESL programs and are staffed with a lot of people and have great resources. What what refugees often are lacking is an opportunity to practice what they're learning. Mm. And I see that a lot. I sit down with a refugee who seems to know no English, who spent years in an ESL class, and they could not ask for milk at the grocery store if their life depended on it. Mm. They would be afraid the, the words would come out jumbled, just like what happened for me with all of my Spanish experience. If I was dropped into Mexico, I wouldn't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. But 
If I built a relationship with someone in Mexico, then all of that innate knowledge would come to the fore over the coming weeks. And I see that with my friends. Uh, you know, there's one man I use as an example often named Biak, and he's a, he's a Chin pastor here in Amarillo. And when I first met with him, it took me 10 minutes to explain to him that I have younger brothers. I just could not get it. I'm showing him maps and pictures. It just, the most basic thing I could not get across. And yet now he comes onto my back porch, my house, and we talk for hours about deep issues about how to benefit their community. I have never sat down with him and taught him a grammar lesson or anything like that. I've simply built a relationship with him and allowed him to practice what he's learned elsewhere. Okay. So the language focus has been that combined with the kind of personal focus on other languages uh, in order to build trust uh, with different communities. So when I use Somali, it opens up doors of trust with Somali leaders that allows us to, to meet needs. Mm, okay. Tell us a, a little bit about the, lang- uh, the, uh, the language project itself how you got that started, what kinds of things do you do, what's the structure of that? Yeah, sure. Uh, we are kind of, we're, we're a standalone nonprofit at this point, uh, but Redeemer Christian Church incubated this project and allowed us to get off the ground uh, with the idea that we would be neutral. So we, we don't belong to Redeemer or any church, uh, and our goal has always been uh, to remove language barriers, build leaders, and cultivate community among the refugees in Amarillo uh, and, and even uh, surrounding regions. And so that has led us to establish events. We've, we've called them Table Talk, uh, and those, those have been very successful. That's, uh, that's been a, a weekly program where we've, uh, we've sat down around tables uh, and shared a meal together. And each week, we focused on a particular cultural issue. So, for example, one week we focused on leadership and what does it mean to make decisions for your community. You know, in America, we think of decisions being very individualistic. We can make them for ourselves. But uh, that night, we had lots of Somali people, and they do not make decisions in the same way. They are group-oriented, and a decision that they make has to be made with lots of other people. In fact, if you ask them what they like, you might see them look to their left and right to see what other people like, because that's what they like too. Okay. So we, we introduced the mayor. We had the uh, mayor, Ginger Nelson, come out and speak so they could see an example of leadership. We shared a Somali proverb, and then we had conversation questions uh, about leadership and decision-making. So volunteers, uh, primarily from churches, though not, uh, again, this isn't a church program, Uh, so volunteers from all over the city sat down across the table from our guests, and we talked about culture. We're practicing English, but we're getting at the deeper cultural issues and building relationships in the process. So out of that program, a lot of other programs have developed because we've built relationships there, and that has catapulted us into relationships where organically we've heard about needs and been able to address them. Perhaps our biggest impact is through our mentorship program, 
we call it face-to-face, -face, where we pair people one-on-one. -on -one. And we have about 25 of those mentorships happening where, where a, a volunteer goes into a refugee's home weekly. Uh, and some of those relationships have now lasted for 18 months, two years. This is just something that isn't usually done. I mean, first of all, refugees almost never get invited into someone's home, never have guests into their home, uh, American guests anyway. And second of all, we are, most Americans are just terrified. And so there are so many good things that come out of these relationships. And not only that, these people are speaking English fluently uh, with confidence, uh, not because we're putting grammar teachers into their apartments, but because we're putting people who aren't teachers, people who are equals, uh, people who see their role as uh, friends more than as teachers. Well, it's, it's far more akin, it sounds more akin to the way each of us learn our first language. Exactly. We learn it by exposure and we learn it relationally. When I ask refugees how they learn the languages that they speak, they never say, well, we opened a book turned to chapter 13 and we used the context of recycling to teach about the future tense. I mean, yeah. this is just not that many of them speak multiple languages and they know that from the reality of having to converse with someone that is not like exactly. them. Exactly. And this is actually something we can learn here because we Americans are not known for their, uh, <laughs> for their proficiency in other languages. And yet that is a product of how seldom we interact with people from other cultures. It's all, uh, it's all fake environments rather than real relationships. Mm -hmm. And when we get real relationships, uh, necessity uh, demands that, that we find a way to communicate. Yeah. And creative things happen. <laughs> Pick up on that theme you mentioned a moment ago about fear and some of the fears you've observed. Um, and how those both can get in the way and how some of those have been transforming even for the people who had the fears. Yeah, fear is, a, is perhaps the biggest hurdle that we have to tackle here in Amarillo. Fear from both sides. So um, we, have, we have a lot of people in Amarillo who have grown up um, very interested in safety because I think we value our families and in, in this place in particular um, which is remote and isolated I think there's grown up a culture around protecting your family um, which is great and admirable except that it's taken on a life of its own where we we need to produce safety for our family in such a way that we will avoid any chance any risk and what I see is that that, that fear of risk uh, impacts real people and real situations. It means that most people are, that the thought of, of entering a home of someone who's, uh, who doesn't speak English as their first language, that is, that is a mountain to climb for a lot of people. I mean, that is a terrifying thought, I think, especially... Um, especially with what you might be hearing from the news in, in both sides, pro liberal, conservative, pol political talking points use fear to stoke our emotions. And, and we're, we're having a hard time engaging with real people in front of us. But at the same time, 
I see refugees terrified. Um, you know, last last year, we had a very exciting program at the Somali Mosque here in town, uh, where we had a bunch of uh, local leaders um, come in, and, and the Somali people provided a meal for us. We had hundreds of people in the mosque, and it was an opportunity to break down barriers, build some relationships. Well, I got up in the front, and I shared a Somali proverb, a, not a proverb, a folk tale, um, about a man named Igal who uh, is hiking through the desert and then sees a lion and then hides and cowers throughout the night at that lion. And then when the sun rises in the morning, he realizes that that lion was only a tree. And I'm, I'm telling this, prov this folk tale using a lot of Somali. And I had later that evening, I had an elderly man approach me and said, that lion, that's white people. That's American people to me. I've been seeing a lion and I thought you were talking directly to me. I have been, I have been seeing a lion when in reality, you're just trees. Wow. And he was in tears. He said when he walked into his own mosque, he was shaking at seeing all of these white people in his building. What are they going to do to us? And, and when we left, he's out there in the parking lot taking selfies with all of our kids. <laughs> and the impact is hard to, uh, it's hard to know, but someone like that, an elder in their community yeah. who has that sort of experience, my, my hope is that, that that breakdown of fear will translate uh, in other ways and trickle down in the community. If you don't mind, I, I would love to hear you repeat some of the things I heard you say on uh, the Hey Amarillo podcast, which I listen to regularly, and I heard your story there first. And I remember you recounting some of your own experience when you and your wife went to New Guinea mm -hmm. and how that then became a sort of um, platform or framework maybe for how you were able to understand experiences of the uh, refugee peoples here. Do yeah, you recall what true. I'm talking about? I don't remember exactly what story I told, but I do remember the uh, the experience. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, when, when my wife and I moved to Papua New Guinea, we began working in a very remote place. Uh, we were dropped off by helicopter uh, in a rural environment where there was no running water, no electricity for for a very long ways. And and we watched that helicopter leave us, <laughs> our escape plan. Yeah, this is the story. <laughs> Go ahead. And we, you know, looked up to a throng, to hundreds of people who speak a language that we don't. And it was very scary. These people were not mean, aggressive. They were gracious, hospitable, but, but fear uh, was a really big barrier to us. In fact, they walked us up to our house a little bush house, bamboo bush house, and helped us load the house with all of our gear. And then we went to sleep. I, just the experience of being there put me to sleep for hours. And I tell you what, I slept for so long every night and every afternoon for weeks. And there was a sort of depression that formed around that experience because I was afraid to go outside. What are they even saying, right? And here I am at this point with a master's degree in linguistics with more cultural training than 
99.9% of the planet, and here I am in a place that's so different and I can't function. So if, if I was struggling to such an extent, then, then what is a, a person from Congo who's been a farmer their whole life, and here they are, no decision of their own for many of them. They find themselves in Amarillo, Texas. What, what kind of fear and depression are they experiencing? And the only thing that broke me out of that is that people came into my home and shared with us, sat down in silence. They taught us how to cook on a fire in our living room. They met us where we were at. And then we began to sit on our front porch and people would come and play with us there. And then slowly, we would have confidence to walk around the village. By the end of my years there, I could hike from one village to another by myself, crossing rivers barefoot with, with not a thought in the world. But those early days, those early weeks, it took people coming to me to, to pull me out. And then as I developed confidence uh, in my own resourcefulness and my own ability to communicate, I found ways to do that. And, and it set me on a course for success. And so that same, that same model is really what we're enacting here. We're going into that face-to-face program. We're going into their homes in order to draw them out of their homes, to help them integrate successfully, and also to help them to see that they don't have to give up who they are to be successful here. I, I think many of many champions of this project actually believe that our job is to assimilate people. And that's actually really not true because assimilation isn't a positive thing in my mind, by and large. Assimilation means that you're really giving up a lot of who you are in order to fit comfortably into the new culture. I'm after integration where you're able to hold tightly and comfortably and confidently not only to who you are, but to a new identity that you're establishing in that new place. And both can be true at once. And it enables you to code switch back and forth between cultures and languages and and raise your family, raise your children to understand your own culture as well as the new one. Well, it's far more synthetic in the sense that it's not binary. You're not having to shut one thing off entirely in order to embrace something else, but you're learning how they can fit together. That's so, right. Is that, is that a fair way to say it? Yeah, and it's healthy, sustainable way to live because what what they've who they are isn't wrong. The fact that they are a farmer from Congo or a, owned a gold shop in Iran or uh, owned camels in Somalia or what have you, those parts of their identity, their language, their customs aren't wrong. Um, in fact, I, I'm often teaching Christians not to fear the hijab when I see Somali women wearing their head coverings because the way I look at it, these women are being conservative. They're, being, they're trying to honor God in the way they know, which is to cover their heads. So it's actually the Muslim women in, from Somalia who are not covering their heads that often don't fit into their own culture. They've given up part of that, and we might feel more comfortable with that, but they're also missing out on an important part of their identity. They've made a choice, but I, I don't think 
that there's anything inherently wrong with someone uh, covering their head in order to honor God. Uh, in fact, if you can understand why people do what they do, you can translate it and you can relate it. You know, in Papua New Guinea, it was perfectly normal to walk around women completely topless, and that was not immodest. But for a woman to show the outline of her thigh wearing shorts, okay, it was incredibly immodest. So for them, it was shorts, hmm. okay, and yet toplessness was no issue. And so you just see how when you work among many cultures, you have to have that awareness But what's the goal. If the goal is modesty, then that might wear different clothes, so to speak, in different cultures. I love the way you have drawn upon your own experience to form the the, the mode of engagement with the refugee community here, the, the mode of doing what you do in the language project, because there's, there's an ethos to that that I'm, I'm picking up on that's really deeper than or kind of between the lines of the specific activities of the project, and I, I really am, am resonating with that. And I know, I mean, you and I both know there are lots of um, outreaches, ministries of various sorts to refugee communities around the country, many of them, I suppose, very good, probably very effective in, in their own way, doing a lot of different things. You've, you've interfaced with some of them, and I think there are probably multiple uh, efforts here in the city of Amarillo to the refugee community. Your, yours is one of several. What are some of the observations you've made about and, and this might be kind of broad stroking or general in nature, but what are some of the, the, the things you observe well-intentioned American Christians doing with refugee communities that are simply backfiring or not working and maybe they don't even know why? Yeah, that's a question I ask a lot um, because I, I, there is a heart here in this city in particular, unlike any other place I've seen, a heart to serve refugees, and, and they do it in many creative, sacrificial ways over years. I mean, some of the churches in Amarillo have had active, like, ESL, English as a Second Language, programs uh, uh, geared toward refugees for decades, and they're extraordinary, and they're, they're long-standing uh, efforts to teach English. Um, but what I see sometimes whenever I walk into those walls and, and watch them interact with refugees, I see a lot of um, uh, customs, American customs, that, um, that, that can be confusing to refugees. Uh, one example that I've seen uh, is the use of, like, hand gestures uh, leading like choral singing, which is a, a really important part uh, of worship for many Western Christians. And yet at the same time, I also see, I, 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 I've witnessed uh, people from Africa watching that custom and thinking uh, that that is an incantation, uh, something hearkening back to their their animism wow. uh, back home in Africa. And so when I see that, I think, wow, there, there are many things like this that, that, that we, where we undermine our own goals. Maybe we, we communicate one thing and then we do something that communicates the opposite uh, when we sit down with them. And, and, you know, I, I'm a, a 
Bible believing Christian, and I and I and I think back to Acts fifteen, um, and I think about the important decision to not require um, to not require Gentiles to be circumcised. And in in that moment, what they were saying is that that was monumental. It was monumental. It enabled the church to explode into multiple cultures because suddenly we're saying that the faith in Jesus does not need to be strung up with culture. We don't have to put uh, that baggage on people if they weren't born with it. And then Paul reinforced that again in 1 Corinthians. Um, and so I, I feel like we, we do that a lot locally without without recognizing it, that what we actually, in fact, when I watch ministries try to share the love of Jesus uh, in um, local contexts, what I often see is refugees abandoning or, or rejecting not the Christian faith, but the American representation mm-hmm. of that Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know how often that local ministers, local practitioners recognize that it's that baggage. It's the American baggage. It's the association between Jesus and the American uh, political um, world that that produces a barrier that people would—they're not opposed necessarily to the actual gospel of Jesus. They're opposed to what that looks like in our context— and often for good reason. And so often we're not even able to delineate between what of our overall package of uh, expressions of the Christian faith are cultural and what are really enduring and, and central. Yeah, that's it becomes a, a very, that's that becomes exactly a very right. difficult um, discernment process. Mm-hmm. So we take it all as a ball of wax, you know, just one glob mm-hmm. superimpose that wherever we go. And I saw that in Papua New Guinea because the 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 church in the village where we worked had rejected much of their previous their songs and dances and decorations and all of this extraordinary wealth of cultural heritage uh, to replace it all with g- guitars, you know, leading uh, like worship music. Yeah, uh, and and instead. What I what I wanted for them was th- for them to maybe rescue some of those cultural objects and histories from what they wanted to disassociate with, and then give it new meaning. Okay. To redeem it, mm-hmm. um, and 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 let themselves be themselves with a new nature. And, okay. and so, uh, I think that's an important distinction to make. You've talked quite a bit, Ryan, about um, engaging the refugee community relationally, building relationships. Can you give us just a little bit more about what that looks like, or what, what that, maybe anecdotally, what has that looked like for you um, and others with the project to engage the refugee community relationally when that is um, probably awkward um, I in think, a lot of ways? You know, this is something I've noticed volunteers of mine, when they watched me work with refugees over time, they realize that what they think relationships are, aren't. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Tell us more. So I give an inordinate amount of time to 
refugee leaders. And so when I'm talking about relationships, I mean they have access to me. So I have picked a few people, a few leaders from each of several groups, and I bring them to my home. I introduce them to my kids. We eat meals together. Um, I tutor them in school, and I answer the phone when they call. And, and, and for many of them, I will meet weekly uh, for sometimes several hours uh, with no agenda whatsoever. So we're talking hundreds of hours over time so that they know me. I'm, I'm the same person in every room. You know, they, they know and they see me and, you know, they're, they've become Facebook friends even, right? So they, they find me on social media. They find me in all these different avenues, public, private. And that builds this trust that, that I am not trying to do something that will hurt them. Uh, one thing that's required to build a relationship is to have a role that's understandable in the community. So I, I think of a lot of people who go overseas. They want to do some work in another country, um, and maybe they go to seminary, okay? And then they go, and then and then what what are they? Does does what they are in that context make sense to those people? Because if not, you will lose trust just by doing what you think is right because they don't have a peg to put you on. Okay. Right. So. In many ways, I'm a, I'm a cultural bridge in the city, but in order to be that cultural bridge, I have to be identified with a role. So I've used that role as ESL teacher. I've done enough teaching and tutoring to be called teacher so that now all these local communities see me as a teacher, as Dr. Ryan. They just refer to me that way, and they know that that's, that's a role that fits. Okay. And it allows them to accord respect to me and associate with me the way they associate with teachers back home. But then it gives me a place in their community where they're the right, they're people I can talk to. They, they know how to, how, to, how to connect with me. It also means that I don't, I don't just build relationships with anyone. I'm careful because I know that a real relationship takes so much time and energy. There are so many things, personal things that I've wanted to do. Maybe a, a game or something I was planning to do with friends on a Saturday, and then it's Friday night, and I get a call from a refugee, hey, will you come to my daughter's graduation? And in that moment, you see the cost of a relationship, and you, you have to think ahead when you build these. If, it's better to make very few deep relationships with the right people than it is to make these shallow relationships and be known by everyone and then you're not there for any of them. And so in the long haul, if you want to have an impact, I'm really convinced that deep relationships with a few who can then pass trust on to their community is much more effective than the shallow way we generally mm -hmm. go about it. That's good. You know, we have um, listeners lots of places around the country, some even internationally. And I think what you've got going on here, uh, both with the uh, Refugee Language Project and in Amarillo, is a really great example for people in, in places outside of the, you know, the major metro areas, but they still have 
refugee resettlements there. I suspect, I don't know this, but I suspect that people in a lot of those communities without an established local ministry infrastructure are really at a loss for knowing what to do with the people, the, the, the strangers among us, as, as the prophets would put it, who are, right, who are now their neighbors. What would you tell them? What would you suggest to them about, you know, if there's not just some established, reputable ministry to kind of hitch their wagon to, where do they start? What do they do? Yeah, you know, that's a tough question. I know every context is different, but what I've noticed in this world is that that it was important for me early on to begin to build a relationship with the players that are here with the resettlement agencies, you know, uh, even dropping by and bringing cookies to people who work as caseworkers for uh, Refugee Services of Texas was one way. Just okay, the, to, the civic agencies. That's right. In this case, okay, absolutely. Um, to help them see that uh, that I'm not against them, that I that I like what they're doing, and I know that their job is difficult. So that's that's one thing. I think as far as like as far as the refugee communities are concerned the most important thing to do would be to make one relationship find one and then just pour a lot of time into that one person and and that's what I did and it has opened up a lot of doors this this man uh Dr. Salad I actually I think I spoke about him that other interview uh I met him by because I was just driving around Amarillo praying, how can I serve this city? And I found the Somali mosque here. I didn't know that was there, right? And I walked in, and this is the man I met. And I knew in that moment, I, I wanted to have a relationship with him. How do I do that? And I thought, well, I thought back to Papua New Guinea, and I thought, exchange. We need to be able to give and receive. So I asked him for a favor. I said, will you help teach me Somali? Will you teach me some Somali? Like, I'll buy you coffee. We can meet at Starbucks. Um, and we started doing that over, like, once or twice a week for the next few weeks. And then, sure enough, then came the favor. He asked me, will you tutor my kids? to pass their like state the uh, testing for school. So I said, yes. I started bringing my daughter and we would, I would tutor them and I tutored them for the next few months. Okay. And then he started teaching me more Somali. And then I started, then I helped him get a job at the local, uni- or not a job, a, uh, helped him apply for an MBA program at the local university. And, and since that time, he has introduced me to dozens of Somali leaders, and he can vouch for me because he knows that I'm out for his good. He knows I've been in his home. I've never taken advantage of him. And he understands my heart. And my daughters or my daughter and my sons know him. And so he passes that trust on and introduces me to the community. And then they, in turn, off, ask for favors, and then I get to pick and choose what's needed. And so you see, that was one relationship that turned into a whole host of opportunities 
to bless the Somali population here. And none of it would have happened if I hadn't had the one deep relationship. I think we always want to, just our Western mindset is just cast the net wide, meet lots of people. Uh, and there's something to be said for that, but what it seems like no one is willing to do is put in the time with one or two people, but put in it sincerely over time and it will pay off and it will, it will help you to understand what's actually happening. Um, and you know, you, you see like refugees come from many countries where they are much more like coconuts. Have you heard that analogy? I've not. It's the coconut and peach analogy where, uh, in, in Germany is a good a good uh, example of a, of a people who are like coconuts. Um, but many African countries, many, many places that are not America are like coconuts. And that is, they have a hard external shell. Okay, they, they don't smile at you while you when you walk by them on the street. Uh, they, they're cold on the outside. But once you crack that shell, you have access to their entire life, to their entire network. If I need something from London right now, I promise you I could, I could text Salad and he would text immediately a Somali friend in London and get it for me with no effort whatsoever because I, I have I the trust. I probably need to meet this guy. <laughs> <laughs> but I have the trust of his whole, because I'm inside the coconut. The reason that it's a hard shell is because they know they need to protect you. If they let you in, there are a lot of obligations and responsibilities in the shell. Hmm. It means he can ask me financial questions. How much does your house cost? I'll tell him. There's nothing, there's nothing hidden once you get through the shell. You're in. Americans, though, are like peaches, soft and fuzzy on the outside, friendly, but in a fake way. At least that's the way it appears to coconuts. Okay. Because they see, oh, they're so friendly. They're welcoming. Oh, they invited me to this. They're smiling. Wow. They really like me. They they must I must already be on in through their shell. And then we hit the pit. Americans have a pit and only a few people have access to that intimate level of knowledge of us who who might have who we might feel comfortable seeing our bedroom, who could ask us a question about finances, who could tell us what we're doing wrong about our parenting. Okay, so we are very warm and fuzzy to a point, and then the wall starts. And that wall is further outside for many refugee cultures. That's where that shell is. But once you get through it, then you have a friend for life. So we have to take that that seriously because you don't want to get through that shell with too many people because you're going to let them down. You're going to misrepresent yourself if you get through that shell and then you abandon them. Matt, I wish we could talk for an hour, an hour more. We've been interacting with Dr. Ryan Pennington, who is the founder and director of Refugee Language Project in Amarillo, Texas. Uh, you can visit his website, which is refugeelanguage.org, and there you can get all the typical website stuff uh, <laughs> about the, uh, the ministry and the project, learn a little bit more, see a, a better picture of Ryan than what I'm going to take uh, for the podcast. But Ryan, thank you very much. Yeah, thank for you. your time and for everything you've invested and all we're able to learn from that. 
Um, I have one utterly re- unrelated question. Of course, everybody's got to have their stupid podcast question, right? I, I don't. I don't have an eight straight like Jason had with Hey Amarillo. Um, but you know, lots of folks drive through here on I forty, um, and you see all the. Well, well, let me back up. What I've learned in um, uh, over the last few years here visiting Amarillo is there's a lot of really good food here mm-hmm. um, that people might not know about. So apart from all the chain restaurants and the signs on I forty, if somebody's driving through Amarillo, uh, they need to stop here. And where do they need to eat? That's off the grid. Okay, I've got two places for you. All right. Okay. Two current favorites. If you want ethnic food, I would go to Tombs. That's T O O M S. And that's it uh this on uh Grand and 24th. It's actually on 24th. So it's just north of I-40 a few blocks um on the far east side of town. That is really authentic great Lao and Thai food and it's cheap. So I mean, five dollars and you're out of the door. Tombs okay. is fantastic food. Um, for something really stylish, Western but really good is Yellow City Street Food at like Wolflin, I think, and I forty. Uh, great street tacos. Just Yellow City Street Food is a is a great place to sit down and have a bite. I I may or may not be there before I leave here on this trip. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really. I mean, their chef. Uh, yeah, you got my attention. Fantastic! It's a really good food. Good. It's always changing. I I can't say enough good about it. Good, good. Well, I'm yeah. I'm on a personal project to eat my way through Amarillo. So, <laughs> good so luck. You'll be here me. for a long time. <laughs> well, I hope so. Ryan, thanks again. Yeah, thanks, Don. This has been Engage 360. I'm Don Payne. Talk to you again next week. <laughs>